questions this morning about a penny. Okay, some of you are going to get this collectively. We'll figure this out together, I think. Whose face is on the face of a penny? Whose face is on a penny? Now, don't pull in your pockets here and pull out a penny. Lincoln, Lincoln. Okay, what direction is Lincoln facing on that penny? Right? Okay, who says right in here? Anybody say left? Just from memory? Okay, that's a pretty good consensus right there. Okay, what else is on the penny? If you flip the penny over, what are the words on the penny? Okay, what else? One cent? Anything else? Okay, you guys are doing pretty good. You'll get the point here in a minute. Anything else on there? Okay, the, okay, the date it was printed. And then there's a little uh, indention of, of P, Philadelphia, D, Denver, wherever else it was minted. Yep, E pluribus unum. So, okay, you get some different things in the penny. Now, here's the deal. If I was to pick out a handful of change and show you the handful of change, you'd easily be able to pick out a penny, right? But typically, with things we're familiar with, we don't study because we're familiar with them. We, it doesn't require us to study it. But if we were to get out that penny and begin to look at it, we would see more detail than we remember. We would see things that, oh, I forgot that's there, and I forgot that's there. There's a penny because we just don't study things we're familiar with. And when I'm preaching in Romans chapter 12, I'm going to do some repeating things today, and it's very intentional. It's because I want you to study things that are familiar. I want us to hear things that we've heard before, because every once in a while, a light bulb will go off about something we're very familiar with. And when it does, we think, oh, wow, well, I can't unsee that, but I didn't see it before because I was so familiar with it. And I'm going to give you eight commands today from Romans 12. Eight commands is what we're looking at today. Last week, we looked at five. And the nature of commands, as stated last week, is, is going to be received differently from different people. So Christians and non-Christian hear commands. You see, this is repetitive in nature. This is like studying the, the penny. I want you to get this, because this is so crucial for us to understand how to receive God's law properly. The non-Christian is going to hear these commands today and should be rightly thinking, I have violated these commands and I can't keep these commands perfectly I need to be saved. I've sinned against God. I need, to, I need to be saved from God, by God, for God. The Christian who knows I am by, saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and Jesus has fulfilled the law and kept all these commands perfectly in my place receives God's commands differently because they're not trying to earn favor from God. When we hear these eight commands today, we're not trying to get a checklist of, of things to do on a piece of paper when we walk out of these doors so we can make God happy with us. We're walking out of these doors ready to obey God, ready to honor Him because we know what Christ has done for us. And the Holy Spirit has empowered us now to begin to live out that which we say we believe from the inside out. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So we don't want to just say, I believe this and, and, and that. I believe what Christ has done for me. We want to people who become people who are doers of the word, not hearers only. Does that make sense? So let's study that, be familiar with that, think about that, and then by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to live more and more and more like Christ out of gratitude, not out of trying to earn anything from God. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Okay, does that make sense? Good deal. Romans chapter 10, verse 2, before we get into Romans 12, verses 11 through 13. Here's what Romans 10, verse 2 says. I bear with, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is a very bad thing. 
Zeal without knowledge can lead a person to giving up their lives for a lie. Zeal without knowledge can cause somebody to harm a lot of people through misguided passion. Zeal without knowledge is what motivated Paul to drag women, children, and men out of their homes to be persecuted for the sake of Christ before he met Christ. Zeal without knowledge is a very bad thing. Israel had passion for God, they had excitement, they had fervor, they were willing to live and die for God, diligently trying to follow the law of God, but they didn't have appropriate understanding or knowledge. Zeal alone is not virtuous, in other words. Passion for God, I'm on fire for Him, if it's not complemented by right and proper knowledge, is not virtuous, and in fact, it's very, very bad. But God's going to tell us today that there's something else that's bad as well. Knowledge without zeal is also a very bad thing, and you can harm a lot of people with it. Knowledge without passion leads to dead people walking around claiming to be alive, or worse, alive people acting like they're dead. Zeal without knowledge is bad, and knowledge without zeal is bad. They're both dangerous things. So what we don't want in this church, in our, our family here, is a group of people who have right answers but have no heart who are zealous for the truth, but don't shed a tear for the non-believer who died. We don't want, we don't want bigger brains and smaller hearts. That's not a good thing. We don't want to be lazy with zeal. Look at chapter 12, Romans 12, verse 11 through 13. Here's what it says. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. I stated it last week, and again, it needs to be repeated this week. When we hear God's commands, as believers, what we are hearing is God's will for our life. And the more we know God's word, the more we know God's, God's will. And the less we'll say things like, What's God's will for my life? I just don't know. Today you're going to get just a ton of God's will for your life. This is God's will for you. He's just telling you, here's what I want for you. Here's my will for you. And the more we think about what's God's will for me in concrete terms rather than mystical terms, well, I think this is God's will for me or this is God's will for me, the better off we will be when we know what God's will is for ourselves as we walk out of these doors. And God's will for all of us. This is God's will for every single believer we know what to do by the grace of God as we walk out the doors every week. Okay, I want to live out God's will for my life. He's given me direction. He's not just left it up to me to figure out on my, by myself. He's been really kind to not only save me, but then give me instruction on how to live my life. That's really precious. So as I'm going through these today, these eight commandments, there's going to be... I think, conviction from the Holy Spirit for you about one over the other, one or the other, where, where you're hearing one of these things and you're thinking, okay, that's an area where I think God is beginning to work in me. I need to grow in that area. I need to, I need to make this a pursuit of mine. This is noble. This is good. This is, I want to point my ambition right there and go for it. I want to get better in this particular area. And I think we can trust the Holy Spirit to work that out for us, to know when and how to obey these commandments. The commands of God are good for us. They're not evil. Now, they are wrong if we approach these commands and say, I've got this, I'm going to do it, I'm going to save myself, and we cast off the work of Christ. That's not what we're after, as already stated. 
but they are good for us. We realize God saved me, and my goodness, thank you, God, for telling me how to live this week. I don't have to just figure it out. So I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. The first command we see, and by the way, in the commands that we see, this is how our minds are being renewed. This is all in the context of, of not living according to the world and being conformed according to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds. As we hear these things, we are being transformed by the renewal of our mind. This is, this is what mind renewal looks like. God, I want to obey you, and when you tell me to do this, I'll do it. When you tell me to not do this, I won't do this. So if you tell me to not do something, well, by golly, I'm not going to do it. And here's what he says. By golly, I don't know if I've ever said by golly before in a sermon, but there we go. By golly. I, it's all that little house I've been watching it. Watching, yeah. I'll say I do declare. You can watch Little House on the Prairie without fear. It's so good. It's just so fun. Do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Christians are called to be passionate. Dare I say, Christians are called to be on fire. On fire. There's no such thing as, as radical Christianity. There's only Christianity. There's no such thing as being, the, the default for us is zealous, passionate. We are to be on fire. That's what God calls us to, zealous. Not just for right thinking, but not just for God's law, or not just good theology, zealous after God himself. Not just to know a series of data, as J.I. Packer warned us about. We don't, in his book, Knowing God, this this idea of knowing God is not just knowing about God, it's actually knowing God, the God of the universe. We don't want to just have facts memorized that we can regurgitate and spit out. We want to know the God that we love, and we want to be zealous for Him. We're not to be slothful when it comes to zeal for the Lord. And Proverbs, Proverbs makes this connection, there's a connection that's made here, that there's something to do with sloth and zeal. Okay, laziness and zeal. We're not to be lazy when it comes to zeal. And the Proverbs has a ton to say about laziness and about the sloth. Here's a couple sample ver verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 19. The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who brings shame. Chapter 19, verse 15. Slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Chapter 12, verse 27. The slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Chapter 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not know, does not plow in the autumn. He will seek harvest and have nothing. Chapter 19, verse 24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. And there's a connection in the Proverbs then to laziness and physical poverty. So physical laziness leads to physical poverty. And in this passage, spiritual laziness leads to spiritual, po spiritual poverty. We are not to be spiritually lazy. Spiritual laziness will lead to lack of zeal. And we are not to be lazy in zeal. To be passionless about God is to be walking in sin. To be passionless about God is to be walking in 
sin. There has got to be a head and heart connection. We are whole beings. We are not just material beings. We have a body and we have a soul. And if we want to get in a big fight about it, we have a body, mind, and soul. And some of you know the argument, Richard. Dichotomous, trichotomous. There's big, big fights about that. The whole point is we're not just material beings. We're not just flesh and bone. We have a soul. And we don't want to just have our minds filled with proper and good and true right doctrine and our heart lazy and slothful. Spiritual poverty is connected with physical poverty. Sloth leads to laziness. But instead of being passionless about God, we are to be fervent in spirit. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. So as a pot boils, when you put a, a, and I like when boiling water, here's a quick tip for you. If you're going to boil water in a pot, put a lid on it. It's a lot more efficient, okay? And it will heat up and boil faster. And then if you're boiling eggs, the key to get the shell to come off perfectly, you've got to boil the eggs at least for 14 minutes. If it's under 14 minutes, you're going to rip that egg apart. If it's over 14 minutes, you're good to go. 14 minutes is the key. But first, to get that water boiling, you put the lid on. And if, if you don't watch, if you're doing rice or something, you know the, the water's going to boil out. It just boils up and over. And your lid is there, and it's all of a sudden it's pour, pouring over. Water boils. As water boils in a pot, and it begins to boil over. For the Christian to be fervent in spirit and to be zealous for the Lord looks like, it looks like something. It's going to boil over. You're going to, you're going to be told by people, man, you really love the Lord. You really love people. You really love God's word. You're going to be the type of person who comes to church and is excited about it. Who says, man, I can't wait to get there on Sunday morning. I can't wait to worship God with my family. You want to tell people about it. I can't wait to hear from God. I can't wait to wake up in the morning. There's an excitement that bubbles up inside of you and boils out and over and you cannot contain it. The work of the Spirit inside of us begins to pour out of us. And we want the Holy Spirit to set us on fire. I think for all of us in this room, if I just say, do you want more passion for God? you want more excitement? Do you want more inside to be going on than is? We would all say, yeah, there's more. There's more that... I can have more passion. I want a connection there. I want, I want to be zealous for good works. I want to be zealous for the Lord, passionate for Him. And here's what's interesting. When that happens, when we because we, we have a, we're a passionate crew here. And I don't know if you know or not, but there's different kinds of people in this room, like, like uh, different kinds of personalities. Me and J.T. Porter aren't a lot alike personality-wise. We're just not. I'm hyper. JT's more stoic. I think unless you get home and just sing and dance all the time, I don't know, maybe that's what JT, JT's home life looks like. Him and Allie, you know. Okay, we have different levels of, of, of emotion that comes out of us. Some of us are quiet and still, and others are loud and crazy. So everybody has different temperaments. And when a stoic person is passionate or zealous for the Lord, it looks a lot like stoicism. We can't interpret that stoicism as deadness. To be on fire or passionate for the Lord does not mean hyper. It doesn't mean hyperactivity. It means from the inside out, there's real emotion for the Lord. Whatever emotion looks like for you. For some, it looks like tears. For other, it looks like your arms are folded just like it looks like in any time of your life. When your team wins the Super Bowl, 
You sit like this and you go. <laughs> because that's what emotion looks like for you. So we, we, we want to be quick to not judge. We, we, we don't want to be quick to judge somebody and say, well, that's dead or that's not on fire. Some of the most passionate people you know seem docile. And yet we also don't want to say the most passionate looking person or hyperactive person that you know is, in fact, superficial. We don't want to say that, well, that's superficiality, or that's not real, or that's not authentic, because that's not what emotion looks like for me. Man, if God has built you with a big personality, be a big personality that's on fire for the Lord. And if God has built you as a stoic, you be the most passionate stoic there is who really loves the Lord from the inside out, who wants to honor Him, who wants to obey Him, who cares about people even as you sit and look like that. Nothing wrong with that. So how does this, how does this happen? How does fire, passion? You know, King David, the man after God's own heart, prayed to the Lord and said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. The church of Ephesus that got such a magnificent letter in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the church that got completely, I mean, the revival came to Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19, and it turned the city completely upside down. The city was changed from the inside out. The whole economics of the city, they were selling idols. There were so many people who became Christians that the economic system of the city was turned upside down, and people were saying, nobody's buying idols anymore, and they had a riot in the streets. The city was transformed by the power of the gospel from the inside out. And then you start to see this love problem with the church at Ephesus. You start to see this love problem in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John was a pastor in Ephesus. And you see this love. Love the brothers. Love God and love each other. Love, love, love. And then all the way to, Re to Revelation chapter 3, we find out that the, the church at Ephesus had forgotten their first love. They had right doctrine still, and they didn't put up with false teaching, but they had forgotten their first love. And so Jesus tells them, do what you did at the beginning. It was a call to action. Do what you did at the beginning. Do what you did at the beginning. Don't just have right answers to everything. Remember the joy of your salvation. And for some of us, we need to stand with or sit with or kneel with David and with the church at Ephesus and just be reminded, okay, first love. I want to be reminded of the joy of my salvation, the simplicity of God saving me by His grace. How are we to be fervent in spirit when we feel passionless or when we feel like there used to be passion, but that seems to have faded over the years? What are we to do? Well, instead of spiritual laziness, this passage, I think, challenges us to spiritual action or spiritual discipline. What is the opposite of the sloth? The opposite of the sloth is being a hard worker or being diligent. And so when we think about spiritual disciplines, I think it's the antidote to slothfulness and passionless Christian living. Sometimes we need to simply do something rather than doing nothing. And I, I, I want to challenge this. It's like an action call, action steps. I want, to, I want to challenge you. I want to give you a call to action this morning. Instead of being slothful in zeal, I want you to be an action, an action person who's walking with fervency of spirit. So, so uh, what happened to the evangelistic zeal you once had? Or the passion for knowing God that you once had? Or the love for your neighbor that you once had? 
you may be asking or wondering, when did I start getting bored or tired? And so today you can do something about it. You can literally, you can do something about that. Don't be spiritually lazy. Just some simple action steps that I want to challenge you with. Get up tomorrow morning without making excuses. No matter what time you need to make up, wake, uh, wake up, not make up. Uh, no matter what time you need to wake up and open your Bible and hear from God. I'm not a morning person. Well, so? That's an excuse. When are you going to do it? Okay. Well, I, well, I'm not a morning or an evening person. Oh. Stop making excuses. Just do it. It's a call to action. Wake up and hear from God. If, you are, if you're a night owl, stay up later than everybody else. And open your Bible and hear from God. Don't make excuses. There's no reason to make an excuse. Do it. Get up tomorrow morning. Don't make an excuse. Hear from God. And do that every day without making excuses. Well, I just don't have time. There's people, there's 24 hours in everybody's day. And you have time for the things that matter. And if you want to read God's word, you'll make time for it. If you don't, you won't. The issue is your desire. So you have time in the day, just like everybody else. It's the same currency we all have, 24 hours in a day. Stop making excuses. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Spend time hearing from God. And then pray. Respond to God. Ask God to help you and restore the, store the joy of your salvation. That's what David, the man after God's own heart, did. And that's what we should do. If we feel, you know, tired, burned out, whatever. God, I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to live like this. I don't care what's facing my day today. God, bring joy to me today. I want to honor you with my life. And I'm going to live it the best I can for your glory and honor today. Pray. Ask for God's help. Talk to God. Talk to your children and grandchildren. Say, well, I haven't evangelized in years. Well, who's around you? Talk to them about Jesus. Evangelism is not rocket science, folks. Really not. Part of what I'm going to be talking about at the conference is the ability just to simply talk to your family members about Jesus. Now, that can be hard sometimes. Wayward sons and daughters, aunts and uncles, the crazy uncle that's going to take it weird and make it really political and shut you down, or the crazy aunt who's going to look at you with that stink eye and say, no, don't go there. But you can evangelize with the people that are around you, with your kids and your grandchildren. That's real evangelism, by the way. It doesn't have to be cold call, knocking on the door and saying, do you have the assurance today that if you died, you would go to heaven? That's wonderful, and we need to do those sorts of things. But evangelism isn't one way here. Some people are really good. I can go and knock on anybody's door here and ask that and not feel weird about it. And you may say, well, that's strange. Well, okay, it just doesn't bother me to do that sort of thing. You say, that terrifies me. Okay, well, then who's closest to you? Who do you care about the most? And if your children are already or grandchildren are already Christians or the, the, your neighbors or friends or brother or sister, then you can disciple them. Don't make excuses. Disciple somebody and be discipled by somebody. Don't be slothful in zeal. A call to action. Disciple people after they're saved. That's, that's our call. That's God's will for us. That's the Great Commission. We are disciple makers. That means we are teachers 
of the good news. We are teaching people after they're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us to do. We are teachers of people and we are being taught by people. Do something. Do something. Read good books. You say, well, I don't know what to read. Well, don't just go to the bookstore. Talk to somebody here. There's a lot. This is a reading group, by the way. We have readers in this church. People read, and they want to know good things. And here's what I love about reading good books from Christian brothers and sisters. Reading good books is an act of humility. It's asking somebody to speak in your life in a monologue sort of way. A book, when you open a book and read. Now, the Bible is the book we read time in and time out. You read your book, your Bible, over and over again the rest of your life. You're never getting away from hearing from God. Other good books you need to read. They're good. It's a humble thing to open up a book that somebody has poured hours into. And you're going to tell them, basically, I'm going to receive from you. I'm going to learn from you. And I'm not going to accept everything you have to say. We have to read through the lenses of the scriptures. But we, if you say, well, where's my zeal? Read a good missionary biography. Read a good, good book on the gospel. Read something that's going to stir your affections from the inside out, that's going to make you excited about what God's doing. Read Jim Elliott's notes. Read good books, and you'll be surprised how much God does a work in your life. Read good books. It's, it's interesting how this works. To become a Christian happens from the inside out. In other words, the Holy Spirit has to grant you repentance. The Holy Spirit, you're gifted the Holy Spirit, and then your heart from the inside out desires God in ways that you never desired God before, and at some point then you repent and believe. Okay? The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you. You, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. When you're born again, you're changed from the inside out. You're changed from the inside out. You begin to be changed. Now, it's interesting how this works. That's, that's heart to head. That's God through your heart, okay, changing you. And then your mind, you start to understand things you never understood before about God's Word, for instance, or how the world works. But then there's times that we have to, if we're being slothful in zeal, we have to, it's a call to action, okay, I'm going to do something. And as we do something, we create space there, and the Holy Spirit begins to bring back passion, or do something in us. So it's an act of spirit-inspired will to do some spiritual discipline. And then all of a sudden, oh my goodness, God's met me here in this. And then when God's met me here in this, I, I, from the inside out, the affection comes, the passion comes. And now I'm just wanting to obey and do this more and more. And so wherever you're at, do something. And here's the deal. When we do something, when we act, when we make a decision... That's God working through you. That's not you acting independent from God. God helps us make good decisions. He helps us make steps forward. To when we say, look, Paul says at one point, or when we say work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we wake up in the morning, this isn't a defiant act of my personal will that I'm going to make a decision to wake up in the morning and read my Bible every day for a week. That's God's work in your life. So make the decision. Don't be spiritually lazy. Do not be slothful in zeal. The Holy Spirit leads us to be fervent in the Spirit and with the Spirit. So do something. And when we do, by God's grace, zeal comes back. Passion comes back. The joy of the Lord that we had at the beginning comes back. 
It continues on. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Service. In, in Christianity, God has blessed the Christian with multiple identities. Multiple identities. And there are these different metaphors that are used to convey some spiritual truth. And they're all good and they're all for us. And they can all give us insight to who we are in Christ and who Christ is. You've heard these metaphors before. Romans 9 says, calls people clay. We are clay, God is the potter. Potter clay. You've heard about sheep imagery. We are sheep, okay? We're the sheep and the goats. We are, we are sheep. We're also called, as this text says, servants. Paul identifies himself, although he doesn't call other people sinners, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. He calls other people saints. We get this here in a second. Saints of the Lord is an identity that we walk in. Sons and daughters of the living God. It's a, it's a metaphor. We are, we are sons and daughters of God. It's helpful for us to think through that because Jesus came and died in our place, that we get a seat in the family of God. We are called sons of God. And then this word servant. This is employed here for a very specific reason. We are servants. This is not demeaning. We have a master. Jesus is our master. And we are to serve him. So we don't get this singular identity. We get this multi-layered identity as believers. And it employs something. When God employs these words, it teaches us about something. We are sons and daughters of God and we are his servants. And the Christian never outgrows service to the Lord. Ever. Okay. I use older. Okay. Older saints. Older men and women. There, There comes a time in church life where it's typical for the, for the older saint to say, I'm retired, I'm done, the younger people can do it. I've done my part. And here's what I don't want you, I don't want you to miss. Any older, because there's all, all different age groups here. God did not call Abraham until he was 75. Okay, 75. And he left everything to follow the Lord. You never retire from being service in service to the Lord, ever. God has something for you to do if you're 100 years old. He has called you to be a servant. And there is a place here to serve. And there's a place in any local church, there should be. For young and older and old, we are all servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We take our marching orders from Him. We never outgrow this. God is in charge. He is my master. We are His servants. And it is our joy to serve Him and to fight with Him. He has rights over us. He gives us our orders. He is in charge of our lives. Guys, there's, there's great freedom in this. There's great freedom in this. How many people do you know living their life Purposeless. They're always trying to figure out what's my purpose, what's my meaning, what am I trying to do in my life. I'm trying to find my way in this life. And the Christian has this great advantage to be able to say, I know what I'm doing the rest of my life. I'm going to serve Jesus. He's my Lord. I'm going to follow him all the days of my life. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He has demanded my service and called me into it. And I will not waver. I will follow him all the days of my life. I know what I'm going to do. I know what my life's about. I am in service to the king. 
It's a gift. There is real freedom in this. There is a slavery that looks like freedom and a freedom that looks like slavery. In this world, there is a, there, there is a, a real way to think about uh, self-preservation or taking care of yourself or being a, a person that, that uh, as Galatians says, is able to carry your own burdens and so uh, do what God's called you to do personally. But none of us in this room are independent of our need for our King Jesus. We are called to serve Him and there's great freedom in His service. When we don't know what to do, here's the big light bulb moment. When you don't know what to do, obey your King. Serve Him. Do what He says. And He said, don't be fervent in zeal. You don't know what to do, honor Him. Your King tells you, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And then he tells us some more things. Here's some more commands to us that are good. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. You may have heard it said before that God never commands anything over our emotional life. That's not true. Jesus is king of our emotions as well. And some of our emotions are all over the place. And the emotional world and the mind of it, in the world of the mind, there are so many complexities to the human being. But we are commanded to rejoice in hope. Jesus is king of our emotions. As one author said, Rachel Jankovic, there's times that we need to tell our emotions to shut up and salute King Jesus. And that's not just for females. That's not just for ladies. That's for men. There's some emotional men. Okay? And all of our emotions have to be submitted to the Lord. He is king over my emotional life. What I feel, what I care about. What I weep over, I want to submit myself to my God. And we're told to rejoice in hope. This is interesting in the Bible. The Bible never separates happiness and joy. These are, these are categories that are made up in, in Christian world to say there's a difference between happiness and joy. Biblically, there is no difference whatsoever. There's none. Happiness and joy are the, the same exact thing. Now, when people talk about temporary pleasure and they say, well, that's happiness and joy is lasting and it's not dependent upon circumstances, um, I still have ne ne never met anybody who said, well, are you happy in the non-Christian world? And what they meant by that question is, are you temporarily experiencing some sort of pleasure? There's a general idea that, that we're talking about if somebody, even a non-Christian, says, are you a happy person? They're asking a larger question than about that very moment. And in the Bible, there's this connection, joy and happiness, the same thing. And we are to, called to be happy or rejoice in hope. Happiness and joy, they're not separated. We are given directional help over our emotional life here. The aim of the Christian life is rejoicing in something in particular. And what is that something in particular? What are we be happy in? Happy in circumstances? Just happy skipping all the time? Acting like everything is okay? Or happy in something specific? And the Bible is really clear. We're commanded to be happy in something very, very specific. So this is not some trivial, fake joy or happiness that we're called to just say, I'm happy all the time, brother. This isn't a, a call to a life without grief or without sorrow. This is a call to a specific direction that our joy should be fixed in and set on. Rejoiced in hope. Hope. This biblical word, hope. Hope in the Bible is always connected to resurrection 
and the promises of God. Resurrection and the promises of God. When we set our joy on hope, we are holding on to something that is certain and sure. As surely as Jesus has resurrected from the dead, I will too be resurrected from the dead. And the promises of God that are not for me right now and for me forevermore are held securely in the hands of Jesus. And we are to find joy in the hope of eternity and those promises. Let me just ask you this. What if we really believe, like right now in this moment, just, just we'll do a little case study. What if we day in, day out, thought about the promises of God and set our joy and hope? Eternal joy awaits you, brothers and sisters. For those who have experienced depression in this world, set your hope, set your joy, rejoice in the hope that one day, for eternity, five billion years from now, you will have been happy for approximately five billion years with no sorrow no battle with depression no difficulty with your mind you will be free and this life is but a vapor and it can feel like it's dragging on for those who struggle in the emotional area of your life it can feel hard but what if eternal joy and all the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Jesus are true for you and they're coming for you no matter what? Now what that helps me do and what I think this text is challenging us with, when we set our joy and rejoice in hope, it helps us not just to rejoice in future promises, it helps us to rejoice right now. If you're struggling, hear me say this. If you're, if you're in Christ, if you're a servant of His, if you're a son or daughter of God, and you're low, and you struggle with happiness. My natural disposition, I'm a very happy person. God has blessed me with, I'm just, my deep, God has just made me very happy. I'm just happy. Very rarely do I wake up, I just, I don't get sad. I've, I've had sad things, for sure. Just a happy person. Many of you aren't like that. Many of you, are, that's, not your, that's not your natural disposition. But here's the promise. Everlasting joy is secure because of what Christ has done for you. And 50 billion years from now, we'll be on this restored earth together and we'll be fully happy living our lives together. Fully happy with no struggles we're currently struggling with. What if all your struggles and battles right now are completely gone? Would you be happy about that? Let's get a, a little vocal about this. What if your, all your struggles and difficulties and sins and your emotional despair, what if all that was gone and done away with? Would you be happy? Okay, that's coming. That's coming. And that helps us in the present to know that's coming and to hear me just say, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's secure for you. Your battle with sin has an end date. Satan's already been defeated. He is bound in ways he wasn't pre-cross. He is bound from deceiving the nations and he is bound from control over your life. You're the Lord's. And there's a promise that all of our struggles, all of our battles, as we think about that blessed hope, which historians and or, uh, theologians call the blessed hope, and people of old used to call the blessed hope, knowing that we will be restored. 
We will have resurrected bodies. We will live with the Lord on this earth forever with each other. With no pain, no tears, no emotional struggles, no sin life. All the struggles with lust you've ever dealt with will be done and over with. It won't be hard. won't be difficult to follow and obey God. It will be natural from the inside out. And joy will be yours forevermore to the maximum degree. That makes me pretty happy right now. Rejoice in that hope, and we find joy in the present. And it helps us to face tribulation. How are we to face tribulation? Look at this. Here's a command. Be fervent in spirit. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. How do we face tribulation? With patience. What is tribulation? It's any sort of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. So sickness, mental disorder, social fears or problems, economic despair, it's all considered in the umbrella of adversity. And how are we to face that adversity? With patience. And this is a virtue that looks like a vice in our world today because we want everything now. The enemy comes and whispers in our ear, patience is a vice. Get what's yours now. Get the credit card. You can buy vehicles now with six years of financing. Now, if you did that, I'm just, I'm not, I don't want to bring condemnation to you, but there's better ways to live life. Credit cards with 30% interest. Because we want things now. We have to have things now. And any sort of discomfort in our world today makes us nervous and jittery and our palms sweat. We want to get out of it as quick as possible. And as Dennis regularly encourages me, be patient and prayerful. Be patient and prayerful. Patient and prayerful during tribulation. It's easy to just want to get out as quick as possible. It's easier to want to doubt God or His favor or think about, how can I get out of this? How can I just get out of this? As we're even praying and petitioning to the Lord, our desire is do whatever it takes to get out right now. But life requires, godliness requires, to suffer well through adversity requires patience. Be patient in tribulation. The best way to face adversity is to be patient. To stay calm. It won't be like this forever. One of my favorite pastors says, faith is the refusal to panic. God has you in His hand. You can trust Him. And there is nothing, I say nothing, that comes your way accidental. Nothing. His hand is upon you and you can trust His loving hand. What the enemy means for evil, God means for good. And the promises of God for us in the midst of any sort of adversity is that He's working it all for your good, even if it means bringing you home to Himself. That is far better. He is working it all for your good. Be patient. God's in control. He loves you. Your palms don't have to sweat. Trust Him. Be patient. 
in tribulation. And then be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. We have these, again, these commands as we're thinking through these. You may think, okay, patience. God, help me to be more patient this week. Or when we hear constant in prayer, okay, God, I want to talk to you more this week. I don't just want to hear from you from the other side of the table by reading your word all the time and just ignore what you're saying. I want to talk back to you. I want to respond to you. I want to pray to you. I want to petition. I want to submit to you. Prayer is available at any moment of our day. Constant communion with God is available. And let me just challenge you, whenever you have an impulse to pray, pray. Constant, the word is used constant. Persistent devotion is what the word means. Consistent means persistent devotion. The Christian life is meant to be a regular prayer life with God. We hear Him from His Word. We talk to Him through prayer. We respond to God through what He is doing in our life by simply talking to Him throughout the day. We say simple prayers like, God, help me to see what you want me to see today and do what you want me to do today. Help me to see your glory today through what you've made Help me not miss the sunrise that's so beautiful in our area and the sunsets that are so beautiful in our area. Help me not not miss the need that's in front of me at the grocery store today. God, help me to see and do what you want me to see and do. 30-second prayers are not small prayers that we should feel ashamed of. They're a sign that we're in constant prayer to God. In fact, 50 30-second prayers throughout the day are preferable to one hour of prayer in the morning and not talking to God to the rest of the day. And for years, this has been really encouraging to me because for years, I have felt weird and like this icky thing about my prayer life of like, man, I don't have this long, devoted two-hour prayer, one-hour prayer with my big prayer sheet every morning. To be sure, I have a list of things to pray through. But if you saw me all day long, I'm constantly, and this is what we're called to do, constantly, God, thank you, I I, I pray over this situation, I pray over that, those are not menial prayers, that's constant communion with God, it's talking to Him, praying for Him, God, help me to see what you want me to see, God, give me wisdom right now, give me wisdom, because I feel like spanking Him and putting Him in the room for for three weeks, (laughs) give me direction, God, she doesn't understand me, or he doesn't understand me. How many times have we thought those things and we can just pray, God, give me wisdom, give me grace right now. Give me understanding. In church life, it's easy to think the worst about each other. But instead of that, what if we prayed for one another? God, I thank you for my church family. God, I thank you for them. Help me to love them. Exactly some of the things we talked about last night. The Christian life is meant to be in persistent devotional prayer to the Lord. The prayer life of the Christian is constant. It's not simply once a day. So for some of you, that may be some freedom. You're driving to work and you're saying, God, help me to be Christ-like at work today. Boom. Communion with God. You're talking to Him. You're praying to Him. And that's what we're after Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The Christian church is to care for one another. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. If If there's a person in need in our church, I love this, we take care of them. If you have a need in this church, make it available and we would love to meet that need. We are to care for one another. And Christian communities 
are people who meet each other's legitimate needs. We care. And it's not about handouts, it's about care. In fact, a church in Thessalonica wanted handouts, and Apostle Paul said, if a man doesn't work, he's not going to eat. doesn't matter if he claims to be a Christian or not. If he doesn't work, he's not going to eat. We're not talking about handouts. We're talking about genuine needs. We come together, and if need be, if the needs, if we live in such a wealthy society that needs are so different from culture to culture. Needs are different here. We have pretty much everybody in this room, God has met all of our needs above and beyond. But if anybody in here has a need and say, you know what, I, I'm working and I just, I can't make ends meet. Okay, well, let's help you. Let's, if I have to, I'll sell something so we can get your lights on and then let's help you build a budget. Let's, we want to contribute to your needs. We want to care for you. And the Bible says to be a Christian is to contribute to the needs of the saints. We are, a, we are to be a generous people. And a part of that is giving to a local church, which we do. But a part of that is to simply care for each other. You don't even know, I, I, okay, somebody pays for your meal, takes care of you and says, here, do this. One moment, one years ago, Margaret Samuel, she's with the Lord right now. I backed up into, with my ball hitch, it was on the back of my, my, uh, my truck, I backed up into a Cadillac, had to be a Cadillac, and over in Carterville, backed up and just barely did a ding in the, in the front of the Cadillac, you know, I'm like, oh gosh, you know, we were newly married, then, you know, 500 bucks is like a million dollars when you're, you know, newly married. And so I wrote the note, you know, did this note, and, and the guy said, well, I'm not going to take it to the dealer. I'll take it up north of Carterville and take it to this place. And they said they can fix it for 500 bucks. And I thought, okay, well, well, that's fine. You know, I'm still like, you know, God, please. Margaret Samuel comes up to me, I kid you not, the next Sunday, the very next Sunday. And this stuff happens, and we should expect it to happen because we are to contribute to the needs of each other. Margaret Samuel comes up. She's like, I don't know why, but God wants me to give you 500 bucks. 500 bucks covered. That was the Lord. That was God. That was Margaret Samuel, godly woman, her and her husband, Bobby. That, they didn't have a lot of money. And that was them doing this very verse. Meeting the needs of one another. Contributing to the needs of the saints. And to seek to show hospitality. We are on the offense when it comes to hospitality. These eight commands, it feels like a, just a barrage of commands. But there's freedom. We'll finish with that. Hospitality. It includes bringing people into our home to care for them. It includes bringing strangers into our home to care for them. Thank the good Samaritan and the hospitality that was shown to the man on the street. It also includes bringing meals to each other after babies are born. We have an opportunity to do that with Lexi and Zach right now. There's a sign-up sheet going on. One of the ways we can show hospitality is simply by making meals, and we've, our church has been so good with that. And Lexi and Zach live 40, I mean, it's 45 minutes from here. And I said it with with the, the Coens as well, who cares? Make a meal, plan your day, plan your week, and bring them a meal. It's an easy way that we can show hospitality to each other. When Lucas and Bree have their baby, we can bring meals there. We can invite people into our homes. We can ask them over for food. We can invite them into our recreation. We can invite neighbors who don't know the Lord over. Hospitality has so much to do with our actual home. Use your home on mission for the glory of Jesus. Ladies, cultures are shaped by your work at home. Your primary calling, ladies, is to the home. Not exclusive call, but your primary call. And this idea of hospitality, in large part, is up to you. 
And societies are changed through things like cooking. Cultures are developed. When you think of the South, what do you think about? Sweet tea and bacon grease. You think about food. Who's primarily making that food? Ladies, culture shapers through the home. The home, so goes the home, so goes the world. So goes the home, so goes the church, so goes the world. You can back it up. All the problems that we see right now is because there's been such a massive breakdown in the home in the last 150 years. That's why our culture is the way it is. For there to be a different culture and for there to be a different, different world 100 years down the road, it takes people taking their home seriously. And if Christians will take their home seriously now, watch the difference it makes. We'll do a case study just in southern Illinois. If we'll take our homes seriously and be committed to this decade in and decade out, southern Illinois will look different than it does today. So goes the home, so goes the church, so goes the world. Men being men, women being women. Seek to show hospitality. When we get to invite people in, we're inviting them into a way of life that's countercultural, that looks weird. It's like stepping out of the matrix or seeing it, seeing it for what it is. Oh, this is how the world's supposed to function and operate. Not like everybody else in the world and media says it's supposed to function. This here is the kingdom of God on display. Wow, that's different. When we invite people in, we don't invite them into a perfect we don't invite them into a perfect home. We invite them into a home that's in love bonkers with Jesus and that cares about the people in that home and wants to see him honored and glorified in that home. And if our lives in the home are indistinguishable from the world, then we do have a massive, massive problem. We are a peculiar people. That means we should look weird. And we should be okay looking weird to the world. We should be okay with that. Our goal is not to try to look as much like the world as possible to trick people to be Christians. We should, by obeying Jesus and living out what he calls us to do, look so weird to 2020 America. And we should not care one iota if they think we're weird. We are a peculiar people. When non-Christians experience Christian hospitality, it should be completely and totally otherworldly to them in the most wonderful sort of way. Hmm, this is strange. Kindness. Humility. Love. Strong men. Godly women. Happy kids. And in their craziness, trusting in Jesus. Huh. Peculiarity. So we have eight commands. Eight commands in this text today. And I think for all of us, as stated at the beginning, the Holy Spirit may be working one in a particular way. But you walk out of these, and these are your marching orders. This is what we're to do. We are, we are Jesus' servants. So we're going to go out and do what he has us to do. And we are commissioned today with all this glorious stuff. And we don't have to wonder, God, what's your will for me this week? This is your will. And yet for all of us, we know as we hear these words and think about these things, we're thinking, God, we have so much more to do. We have so much more to be transformed in us from the inside out. Because I look at these and I still struggle with these. Join the club. So did the Apostle Paul in his old age. So will every believer. The most wisest man in the history of the world apart from Jesus was Solomon. And guess what got Solomon? He shows us that wisdom alone won't save. Solomon was... Turned by beautiful women. 
The wisest man. Wisdom can't say. We don't come to this and say, well, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to get in my own strength. We come to this and say, Jesus, we need you. Thank you for the finished work of Christ. Now, Holy Spirit, empower me to be what you're calling me to be. And let's trust that he will. That the Holy Spirit will make us in more and more to these types of people. We've got our marching orders. There's no excuse. Don't make excuses. Don't say, yeah, but, yeah, but. Forget that. Let's go out and honor our king. It's what he's called us to. Non-Christian, if you're in the room, it's all foreign to you. Well, here's the deal. You don't have a future hope to help you be patient in tribulation. You don't have the tools to be able to start to live this stuff out from the inside out. So this morning, I want to challenge you to, again, be crushed by these commandments. I pray these commandments would drive you to Jesus. That you would realize that you cannot obey God, that you have sinned against God, a holy God. You deserve nothing from Him, but He has offered His kindness here this morning, His grace here this morning. Come to Jesus and be saved, and the Holy Spirit will change you from the inside out. Christians, what's the Spirit of God working out in you today? Love God with passion. Love is a verb, DC Talk reminded us. Back in those mid-90s songs, love is a verb. It's an action word. And so if we're to be passionate people, zealous for the Lord and good works. Let us love God with full hearts. Let us never be people who are settled with big old minds, big old heads stuffed full of knowledge that have a shriveled up, dead heart. We want to be people who love God from the inside out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, lead us. Uh, Holy Spirit, help us. I thank you for your commandments. Your commandments are so good. You've given us your will, your desire. Help us. I pray as men and women who are trusting in the finished work of Jesus that we, we would just march on. That we would, yes, let that God from the inside, that's what we want to be. Help us to be fervent in spirit, passionate brothers and sisters in Christ, passionate about our King. To see His kingdom expand and grow, help us. We trust you're going to. Help us to sing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.